0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? I'm Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Darcy. Or to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, account.
1: my name's Jenna Johnson.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, June 23rd. Today, can hospitals require staff to get vaccinated? Plus, ethical questions in the Biden administration and coming out in the NFL.
2: The news in Houston is that more than 150 workers at one of the city's biggest hospital systems have decided to either quit or get fired instead of getting vaccinated against coronavirus.
0: Dan Diamond is a national health reporter for The Post.
2: It's been big news for a few reasons. I think, first, there are lots of employers around the country trying to figure out how do they reopen their offices? How do they bring workers back in a safe way in the middle or or in the tail end of the pandemic, at least in the United States? I think the second issue this has been so closely watched is Houston Methodist, this hospital system based in, in Houston, was on the vanguard. They were one of the early adopters of the idea that all workers needed to be vaccinated. So as they have gone through first a campaign inside the hospital, then a legal fight with one of their former staffers, now this decision to see staff leave, they have been setting the pace for a lot of other organizations trying to decide whether they also want to mandate coronavirus vaccines too.
0: So take me back to the beginning of this story, or at least the beginning of when it became clear that some of these hospital workers were not going to agree to get vaccinated. How did this start to become an issue?
2: You know, this started, at least for me, about six weeks ago when I was reporting on a question that that we had in the newsroom. What are the rules? What does it mean for a college to reopen this fall and require coronavirus vaccinations? It was a good question. So I went and talked to employment lawyers. I talked to organizations that were imposing mandates or not. And it seemed clear even then that Houston was going to be a flashpoint. Mark Boom, the CEO of Houston Methodist Hospital System, had imposed a policy at the beginning of April that all 25,000 employees of the system needed to get vaccinated by June. And as a result... Vaccine uptake shot up. There were, I think in mid-May, about 85% of staff had been vaccinated. That that number crept up every day that passed.
0: Can I just ask, like, was that decision unusual? So other hospitals are not doing this, like, mandating that people get vaccinated if they work there?
2: Good question. At the time, it was unusual. Houston Methodist said that they were the first hospital system to do this, and I couldn't find any evidence that they were wrong. But there have been some hospitals that have followed suit, at times expressly crediting Houston Methodist for its example.
0: So you said that after this decision that the vaccination rates among hospital staff shot up. But what happened after that?
2: Well, there were a few dissenters who had emerged even in in mid-May. So one of those dissenters was a nurse named Jennifer Bridges, who had worked on the coronavirus unit at Houston Methodist. She had seen the virus up close. And she had first circled a petition around the hospital saying that staff didn't want to get vaccinated. And by the time I talked to her, she was signaling that she was going to bring a lawsuit to try and stop this vaccine mandate. And then if she got fired, she thought she'd have even more cause in the courts. There were also a few other allies that she had. The director of corporate risk management At the hospital system, a job title that wasn't lost on me, this person's position was to mitigate against risk, and yet he thought that the coronavirus vaccines were too risky. But for the most part, staff did fall in line. And at this point, 99%, if not more, of staff who didn't get exemptions have gotten vaccinated.
0: Well... So I really want to understand the thinking behind the people who have decided not to get vaccinated here. Because in my mind, I mean if you are a person who has worked at a hospital, especially in a place like Houston, and have seen the worst of what coronavirus look like in the United States, I mean, I just don't I don't understand how you are not motivated to get a vaccine to avoid the the horrors that you have witnessed and tried to help people through. So when you have talked to people who have said that they don't want to get vaccinated and that they don't think that hospital workers should have to get vaccinated, like, how do they explain that?
2: It's a mirror of all the complaints that we see when surveying people who don't want to get vaccinated. It's, It's those complaints in miniature. Jennifer Bridges, the nurse who worked at Houston Methodist until getting fired recently, her argument was, This vaccine has not gone through full FDA approval, full approval from the Food and Drug Administration. And there's truth to that. The FDA has only authorized the coronavirus vaccines on an emergency basis. That doesn't mean that the vaccines haven't been rigorously tested and tens of thousands of people were in clinical trials last year, but it is a technicality that also opens up the question of can you mandate vaccines that haven't been fully approved? I talked to the corporate risk manager who had been fired from Houston Methodist, and his argument was just go online and look at all the complaints about the vaccine, all the errors and adverse events that have been linked to it. Now, I tried to point out some of the reporting around Complications from the vaccine itself reported. Martine, you could go on this website and say, "I had a bad experience with the vaccine," and there's there's nothing to validate it. But these are some of the arguments that people against the vaccine have been latching onto. I think I'd I'd add another reason that that came up, which is people who have been exposed to coronavirus may have been infected with coronavirus. And there is evidence that you have immunity. Hmm. Not sure how long that immunity lasts, but some people who don't want to get vaccinated say, look, I had the virus. I had it a few months ago. From all accounts, I should have some protection. Why am I now being ordered by my employer to go get vaccinated when I might not need it? Interesting. So
0: some of these dissenters filed a lawsuit essentially against their employer so that they wouldn't be fired for refusing to get vaccinated. What happened after that?
2: They brought their lawsuit and it ended up in front of a Ronald Reagan appointee in Texas, a U.S. District Court judge named Lynn Hughes. Lynn Hughes, he ruled about 10 days ago and he dismissed the lawsuit Citing a number of different reasons. First, Judge Hughes said that the argument that staff were being coerced to get vaccinated, that that didn't hold up. That Methodist, the hospital, was in the business of, quote, saving lives. And it was up to the workers whether they wanted to get the vaccine or not. And if they didn't want it, they could go work somewhere else. The judge also took on the claims that the hospital was using the workers as, quote, test subjects. Mm. Since, again, the vaccines had only gotten emergency authorization from FDA, and the judge basically said that that didn't hold much water either. Overall, this was a precedent-setting decision. There have been other lawsuits brought around the country, around the possibility of mandatory vaccines. But in some of those cases, the judges have sidestepped rulings. In this case, it was pretty clear this judge was making the point that the hospital was well within its rights to set this policy. And if the workers didn't like it, they could go somewhere else.
0: So once this ruling happened, how many of the workers said, well, okay, if this judge has decided that we have to get vaccinated, we just have to get vaccinated. And how many just said, I will not work at this place if this is going to be the requirement.
2: So the judge's ruling landed in this weird limbo land where about 180 employees had been suspended. They hadn't gotten vaccinated by the deadline. They had two weeks to go through and get vaccinated. Eventually, 25 of them or so did. But another 150, 153 to be exact, did not get vaccinated and they quit. Some of them have already found jobs. Some of them were fired by the hospital for failing to get vaccinated. Jennifer Bridges, the nurse who led this lawsuit, she told me when we talked earlier this week that she had been recruited by a nurse staffing firm that had seen her speaking out, said that the firm supported her and some of her colleagues may now come join her, still working in healthcare, but for a firm that doesn't believe in mandating vaccines. When I spoke with Jennifer Bridges on Tuesday, she told me that she had to excuse herself from the interview for a moment to take a call. It turned out that call was with Alex Jones, the founder of Infowars, a right-wing website that also has amplified conspiracy theories. Our next guest is another amazing lady taking action, Jennifer Bridges. Here is the Texas monthly headline. She's leading the fight against mandatory vaccines in Texas. She also happens to be a nurse. Alex Jones had Jennifer Bridges on his program last week. They talked about why the protest was so important and why they were both so against mandatory coronavirus vaccines. So get into what's happening, what spurred you to do this, and also your other discoveries.
0: Oh, definitely. Um, Basically, long story short, they tried to bribe us with a $500 bribe to take this vaccine. Then pretty quickly after that, they made it mandated that if we didn't take it by the 7th of June, we would be suspended for two weeks unpaid and then we would be terminated. So we fought that part, but we didn't win. So we will be terminated in about a week, but that's completely okay. None of us on this lawsuit and a great deal others do not want to take this experimental shot right now. This thing is dangerous.
2: So I would imagine that even though workers have been dismissed from Houston Methodist, this is going to continue to be an issue that dogs them and some other organizations just given the sheer vitriol over whether vaccines should be compelled for coronavirus.
0: So what is the hospital saying now about the repercussions of this decision. And I would be curious to hear their articulation of why this is so important to get everyone in their hospital system to be vaccinated.
2: Yeah, that, that was a question on my mind too, especially as someone who's covered healthcare for years. But when I spoke to the CEO, Mark Boom, back in May, he said, look, we are overly concerned with protecting patients. We will do whatever it takes to guard against risk in the workplace I believe we have a sacred obligation and duty to care for our patients and protect them from harm. And, uh, you know, COVID vaccine is a perfect example of how we can do that. If workers don't want to come along, then this is not the place for them. If they do want to come along, th- this is a way to set an example for the rest of the healthcare industry. Everybody has been weighing this question, I mean, in healthcare. The vast, vast, vast majority, were all saying they fully intend to be mandatory. It's really for, I think just about everybody, a question of when, not if. And I would predict that you know in the future it'll be virtually universal across hospitals,
3: health systems, uh, you know home health agencies, uh, nursing homes, physician offices, or you know large physician groups, et cetera, because it's the right thing to do. It's what protects vulnerable people. and frankly,
2: It's what we hear consistently from the people we serve. And it is true that some other healthcare organizations, the University of Pennsylvania Health System, said we want to be like Houston Methodist. Many hospitals in D.C. and Maryland have said they're going to impose vaccine mandates. But that took weeks and weeks of first watching what was playing out in Houston. Other organizations were not running to follow suit until they saw a little bit more of what had unfolded.
0: Dan, you know, I'm curious if you have had this experience because I feel like um, with us on the podcast, sometimes we've struggled to figure out the right way to talk about people who don't want to get vaccinated because we don't want to give air to false claims about the risks or the safety of the coronavirus vaccines at the same time, you know, wanting to acknowledge the way that a lot of people feel, which is not entirely convinced. So I wonder how you are navigating that.
2: It's a tricky reality of being on this beat right now because so much of the national response relates to vaccination. The fact that many Americans, tens of millions of Americans say regularly they have no immediate plans to get vaccinated, I do think it's incumbent on us, Martine, to understand what are those reasons? What are the messages that can work to reach skeptical people? In some cases, I've reported on focus groups where people who were against the vaccine changed their mind within two hours. So trying to figure out and distill those lessons. And in this specific case, 150 workers out of 25,000, you could say, I think with reason, this was a success story for the hospital. Overwhelmingly, staff decided to get the shot. But the fact that so many, in terms of a total number, didn't and are continuing to make this a public matter with protests coming and calling attention to it, I, I think it's worth noting that even in healthcare, where workers are as familiar with the risks of coronavirus as anyone in the United States there still are people who are this hesitant that they're willing to lose their job. So that says something about where we are in this public health response. And I think there are lessons for other employers and workers as they enter back into a post-COVID world.
0: Dan Diamond is a national health reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Lena Mohammed. When President Biden took office, one of the big promises of the new administration was a return to transparency and ethics after the Trump years. He vowed not to hire his family for government jobs. He promised to disclose records of White House visitors. He said that he'd support legislation that would expand the definition of lobbying. But there is one family in Biden's orbit that might present a challenge to all of this. The Ruschetti brothers. Steve Reschetti is a senior counselor to Biden and one of the president's most trusted advisors. At the same time, his brother, Jeff Reschetti, is a lobbyist with big name clients trying to influence Washington. Plus, three of Steve Reschetti's children work in the federal government. That got the attention of one of our colleagues, national politics reporter Michael Scheer, and he started asking questions. Do any of the actions of the Rachetti brothers violate White House ethics rules? And how are these ethics rules decided and enforced? Do the rules go far enough? And is better than Trump the standard that the Biden administration should be held to? Last week, Michael joined our colleague Allison Michaels on her podcast, Can He Do That?, to talk through some of these questions. I thought it was a super interesting conversation that we wanted to share with you today. And it starts with this question of who is the Steve Rachetti guy?
4: So Steve rachetti's is a longtime Democratic hand, both on the lobbying side in Washington and on the White House side. He served as a deputy chief of staff during the Clinton administration, remained close to Senator Biden and then Vice President Biden. And in 2012, came into the then Obama White House as a senior advisor to Vice President Biden. He was the chairman of Biden's campaign last year. And after Biden won, he came in as a senior counselor at the White House. He is, without a doubt, one of the three or four closest advisors to the president right now.
5: But somewhere in his history, he also dabbled in lobbying as well.
4: He did. So at the end of the Clinton years in the late 1990s, his brother Jeff was a lobbyist who was lobbying the Clinton White House while he was deputy chief of staff. And then after the Clinton administration ended, Jeff and Steve opened a lobbying firm together that was quite successful for the 2000s during the Bush administration. And that continued until about 2009. Steve Reschetti stopped registering himself as a lobbyist because the Obama administration at that time had a pretty strict rule about not allowing any lobbyists to work in the White House. And then in 2012, he left the firm that he'd worked at with his brother, but his brother continued as a lobbyist and continues to this day as a lobbyist.
5: So given that Jeff Reschetti works as a lobbyist lobbying the administration and his brother, Steve, works in the administration, can you describe the big conflicts of interest that have arisen or the ones that have been brought to the attention of the White House ethics team?
4: So this gets into legal technicality. And I think it's important to note here that there's a difference between what someone might think of as a conflict of interest and what the law and White House policy considers a conflict of interest. On the latter, what the White House counsel has said is that it is a conflict of interest if Jeff Reschetti is lobbying the executive office of the president on a specific party matter, and that's a technical legal term for one of his companies. In those circumstances, the White House has asked Steve Reschetti to recuse himself from any discussion of those Issues Now, a specific party matter under this definition is something that really only is affecting that particular company. So in this circumstance, Jeff Reschetti has four corporate clients. He lobbies the executive office of the president for or did last quarter. Three pharmaceutical companies, one energy company that works on the Keystone XL pipeline. General pharmaceutical issues would not apply here. Steve Reschetti can still generally work on pharmaceutical issues. But if... Jeff Reschetti was lobbying on a particular drug, for instance. Steve Reschetti recuses himself from those conversations. Now, that still leaves an enormous amount that both brothers can work on simultaneously, both because of the definition of what a specific party matter is and because— In the first quarter, Jeff had 12 clients. Four of them were lobbying the White House. The other clients are often lobbying on legislation up on Capitol Hill that Steve Reschetti is also involved in. Or Jeff Reschetti, the lobbyist, is lobbying the Commerce Department or the Treasury Department on something. And Steve Reschetti might be involved in those issues as well. And those are not considered technical conflicts of interest by the White House that require recusal. And so the most obvious example of this is that right now, Jeff Reschetti is hired by General Motors to lobby on pushing for more federal funds for electric charging stations for the next generation of electric vehicles. The Biden administration has proposed $15 billion in funding. It's quite a lot of money in the infrastructure package. He is lobbying the Commerce Department, who has also been involved with Steve Rischetti in negotiations on Capitol Hill about this infrastructure bill. But because he is not lobbying the White House and because electric charging stations are something that apply industry-wide to the car industry and not specifically to General Motors, that has not triggered a technical finding of a conflict of interest.
5: Even though Steve Rischetti is lobbying senators on behalf of the White House and his brother is lobbying members of Congress on behalf of GM.
4: That's right. I think Steve would probably object to the- The
5: word lobbying.
4: You know, Steve is is involved deeply in the negotiations with Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill about what goes into this infrastructure bill. And at the same time, Jeff is lobbying possibly those same offices, definitely the House, the Senate, and the Commerce Department, according to his filings, on those same issues.
5: So it's interesting, as you've pointed out, there is this legal definition and then there's what you have said are sort of what the American public might perceive as a conflict of interest. So how is perhaps a perceived conflict of interest like the one you just outlined? How has that created potential problems for the Biden administration?
4: Well, I think we'll have to see, you know, the Biden campaign was very clear and spoke in very broad terms about restoring ethics in Washington. He campaigned as someone who's going to turn the page on the Trump era. Among the many concerns of the Trump era was that lobbyists were just too deeply woven into the White House. There were other examples during the Trump years where the husband, for instance, of a White House official was lobbying the executive office of the president. That was seen as problematic. In practice, though, Biden's own voluntary rules have been a little more circumspect than the sort of broad claims that I will take care of all of these issues. For instance, he has said very clearly that none of his family members will be involved in lobbying or working with his government in any way. And he's basically put out a public statement that says his brothers and his son Hunter, you know, and other people in his family should not be contacting the White House, should not be involved. That voluntary step has not been extended to his senior staff. So you have circumstances like this.
5: By that, you mean his senior staff can then have family members working in different agencies of the government?
4: It's more about the senior staff can have people on the outside who are contacting his government. I mean, the ethics concern here is, if I called the White House as Michael Shearer, they might take my call or may not take my call. But if my name is Michael Rachetti. They might want to take my call because they recognize that I'm related to their boss, more or less, whoever I'm calling. And so the concern is that someone would trade on the name or the relationship in a way that would give them more access. Or, I mean, what, what seems to be happening in the case of Jeff Rachetti, that companies on the outside would come to someone like Jeff Rachetti and say, hey, your brother is now the big cheese at the White House. We're going to pay you a significant amount of money. Jeff Rachetti, in the first three months of the year... Build more than $800,000 in lobbying fees from these 12 companies. That's quite a lot of money to make in three months. And it's five times what he made in the first three months of last year. So clearly, the fact that the Biden administration has come in has been very good for Jeff Roschetti's business. He, you know, During the Trump years, he was not in the business of lobbying the Trump administration. His lobbying work was relatively minor and it dealt with House and Senate. But now he's got an expanded business. And so that's the concern. It's the concern that came up during the Biden campaign where there was lots of reporting that showed over the course of Biden's career, members of his family had been involved working for industries that he regulated as a senator. In the case of his son, Hunter, he was put on the board of a Ukrainian energy company. He had some board experience, but it was rather odd timing given that his father at that time was sort of leading foreign policy efforts from the Obama administration towards Ukraine. And he was paid quite a lot of money for that role. And that created an apparent conflict of interest, apparent look of impropriety, not a legal one,
5: What you've described here, a lot of what you've described in the case of the Reschetti seems like kind of familiar revolving door Washington, right? Where you have families that have people on both sides of K Street and Pennsylvania Avenue. You have people who come in and out of industry, move from industry into the White House and, and vice versa, depending on the administration. So... Is this just kind of a reality for Washington? Is there a path out of this revolving door? Or will we forever see lobby and industry ties and the interests of the government kind of intertwined in this personnel shuffling?
4: I don't think it's a switch you can toggle on and off completely, just because a lot of what happens in government is so specialized that when those people are not in government, they end up working, helping outsiders access government. And And then when a new administration comes in, whether it's a Democratic or Republican administration, they need somebody who understands how the Environmental Protection Agency works or how you do regulations of pharmaceutical drugs. And they're very specialized fields. And if you made a blanket statement that no one who had ever worked for a pharmaceutical company could help HHS regulate or FDA regulate pharmaceutical drugs, you would really limit the number of people who could work in government, the expertise of government. So there's not really a proposal to ban it completely. I think the debate here is over gradations, over how far you go. Biden has put forward an executive order that has, as another example, certain barriers about once you leave government, whether you can contact your former colleagues for a private company, how long you have to wait before you can do that. And there's also revolving door rules about going into government that limit your ability to deal with issues that your former company had. In the case, interestingly, of Steve and Jeff Reschetti, because Steve Rachetti left his company in 2012, which is more than the two-year window prescribed in the executive order, he is not forced to recuse from all matters that that company, Rachetti Incorporated, the lobbying firm, is working on. I, I could easily find you two or three lawyers or ethicists or good government people who should say that two years isn't enough, but the White House has drawn the line where it's drawn the
2: line.
0: Michael Scheer is a national political correspondent for The Post. Allison Michaels is the host of the podcast, Can He Do That?, which explores the power and limitations of the presidency. You can find a link to subscribe in our show notes or find it wherever you get your podcasts.
3: monarchmoney.com podcast. And
0: now one more thing from sports reporter Nikki Javala and producer Emma Talcoff.
1: So Nikki, earlier this week, Las Vegas Raiders defensive end Carl Nassib made an announcement on Instagram. What did he say and what was the significance? He announced that he is gay, making him the first active NFL player to be openly gay.
5: What's up, people? I'm Carl Nassib. I'm at my house here in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I just want to take a quick moment to say that I'm gay. I've been meaning to do this for a while now, but I finally feel comfortable enough to get it off my chest.
1: There have been players in the past who have come out in retirement. There was Michael Sam in 2014, who came out ahead of the draft, but he did not actually play a game in the NFL. So Carl Nassib, is the first and only so far NFL player who is actively on a roster, actively playing games and openly gay. A lot of teams tweeted support, told him how proud they were of him. A number of players have done the same. I think there is this perception that because the sport is hyper-masculine and very macho, that there is a general homophobia among players and I've there's no data to back that up and so far it appears that the NFL is perhaps more welcoming than maybe some perceived. The players themselves, for the most part, it doesn't apply to every player, but a lot of them are more willing and wanting to speak out about things that are important to them interesting you've mentioned a couple times about there being sort of more of a space now for players to stand up for you know who they are what they believe in but I'm just wondering how to square that with all of the stuff with Colin Kaepernick and this debate about kneeling during the anthem how how do you sort of square those two things the NFL can be quite contradictory I think that's where the biggest change in the league has been and sadly I think a lot of it is because of money so i i think the league is learning perhaps begrudgingly so at times to really listen to its players and what they have to say i also think the nfl is different than other sports because of its structure and the nba at times it feels like there's more empowerment from players. They are able mm-hmm. to more freely speak their voice. Mm-hmm. Well, NBA players have guaranteed contracts. When you sign mm-hmm. a deal with a team, you are guaranteed all that money that you signed for it. In the NFL, that's not the case. So you do one wrong thing, you could be fighting for your job. And that's, that's a factor in a lot of the decision-making for players that also kind of gets overlooked in the conversation is just the different dynamic there and the different ramifications for football players.
0: Nikki Javala reports on the NFL for The Post. Emma Talcoff produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Ted Muldoon. Thank you so much to the many listeners who have made the choice to subscribe to The Washington Post. It is such an important, helpful way to make it clear that this podcast is important to you, and it's a great way to get more of the breaking news and ambitious journalism that can help you better understand the world. There are just a few more days to get an exclusive subscription deal that we've got going for podcast listeners. For just $29, you can get one year of unlimited to. To the Post. Learn more and subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. Again, that is WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. Or click the link in today's show notes. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.